Hi guys, welcome back to The Natural Selection. Um, Nick is going to tell you a little bit about us and who we are. We are The Natural Selection, a group of taxonomists who try and bring their passion for nature into the wild. Uh, each week we gather and sort of chat about the natural world. So in the first section, we talk about nature news and interesting research from the past week. And in the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that sort of relates to flora and fauna around the world. And this week's theme is fossils. So let me introduce who we are. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Nick. Hello. Uh, hi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Naomi, and we have other Nick. Well, we got both of them in one, in one go. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure whether you pronounced the K or not. <laughs> I didn't I, think I heard it, but it's hard yeah, to tell. <laughs> yeah. I should be like, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you guys this week? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Cool. What did you get up to? Any exciting nature encounters? I saw two bugs on the floor that looked almost identical, and I meant to look up what they might be, but they were about 30 centimetres apart, and they were uh, true bugs, I think. They were red with, like, black patterns on their back and had identical black patterns. I know they weren't ladybirds before you say that, but uh, they were sort of flat shield-like bugs. And uh, they had these patterns. And I was trying to figure out, I was thinking, are they running away from each other or looking for each other? So I watched them for about um, two minutes, but they just sort of walked in small circles really, really near each other. Uh, and then eventually I had to leave where I was sitting so I had to go meet a friend. Oh, cool. uh, I, saw, the, I think I saw those same things, Nick, a couple of days ago, swarming a tree trunk. Yeah. And there were just like hundreds and hundreds of them. Pretty cool. Oh, cool. I wonder what they are. Yeah, some sort of true bug. Interesting. Yeah. I went to the zoo, so that was fun. Oh, um, wow. Got to see some, yeah, got to see some animals. I enjoyed that. What yeah, was your Oh, hard to say. Actually, probably have to be the lemurs. Uh, we got that to go in. That did not take you much thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the penguins were pretty good too. We do love penguins. So, so you just like fun. black and white animals. Yeah, evidently. There was no raccoons. No skunks, so hard to say for sure. Any zebras? Zebras? Yeah, there was zebras. Yeah, they were cool, you know. <laughs> we didn't get They're to see bovids, I mean, so Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um didn't get to see the pygmy hippos, which I would have liked, but what can you do? We got to see the okapi. Very cute. Again, black and white. No brown. They have some brown. Stripey. The giraffe. But, Yes, yeah, yeah. Also, you can't tell this, listeners, but Naomi is wearing black and white stripes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's probably enough about us. Do you guys have to get on with the news? <laughs> I see. Yeah, as soon as we start to pick on you. <laughs> I think it's best we move on. Let's go, let's go. Um, um, we'll be back with the news after this short break. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. We're back with the news. I will start us off this week. So I found a cool piece of news. So my piece of news was published earlier in September in Biology Letters. And I was talking, looking at torpor in birds. So I think this is something that we touched on in our sleep episode. But torpor is sort of a form of hibernation or a form of like suspended animation. Basically, it means that you really reduce your body temperature. You reduce all your activity. So it helps you survive and preserve energy in tough environments. So this 
was looking at several different species of hummingbird that are found in the tropical Andes. And they found that the metal tail hummingbird can enter torpor state and drop its temperature as low as 3.25 degrees Celsius. Um, and this is the lowest temperature that's ever been recorded in birds um, and the lowest of non-hibernating mammals. So, yeah, that's actually, amazing. Yeah, it's very impressive. So it's actually quite cute looking. It looks very grumpy because it like puffs up its feathers and sort of brings its neck in. So it looks like it's very mad at you. But yeah, it, it, it's so torpor in birds is something that's that isn't particularly common and um, it's quite rare and it tends to be very variable so it's used mostly in extreme conditions so because these birds live in the andes in cold environments that's something that they do like isn't it if we drop three degrees we might die yeah i think pretty much if we go up or down three degrees not so good for us <laughs> crikey that's yeah. amazing yeah, absolutely. And then so when they want to warm back up, I think they slowly start vibrating their muscles. And then, yeah, they're, once they're warm, back up to about 40 degrees Celsius, they're fine. Naomi, Naomi do you just mean when they, they start shivering? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I think that's effectively what they what they do to get out of their torpor state. That's my nature news for this week. Um, Nick, <laughs> Nick, did you have something interesting for us this week? I'm going to guess that you mean me. All right. Yes, I do have something pretty cool. Uh, a team of researchers at Stanford published last week in Nature. Uh, they have figured out a way of recreating tropane alkaloids in yeast. Now, you may be thinking, what does that mean? Because that's what I thought when I read the article, too. And <laughs> But it turns out tropane alkaloids are a type of compound produced by nightshade plants. The nightshades include potatoes, tomatoes, um, and also some of the more dangerous plants like datura. Um, but they're really they're known for this group of compounds that have neuromedicinal impact. So basically, they're used in a lot of uh, drugs for neuro neurological problems, uh, and they're considered by um, the World Health Organization as essential drugs. Uh, so they're pretty important stuff for people around the world, but with things like the Australian fires and the shutdown of global traffic around COVID, there's been a sort of like localized shortages of this type of drug in different places around the world. So it's starting to be sort of like an issue when people can't get these drugs and help with the problems that they have, but um, because they're so dependent on plants and growing these plants that make the compounds. But what they figured out how to do is basically insert the genes that make these compounds in a step-by-step -step process inside yeast cells so they can now make the compounds in the lab. Wow, that's incredible. That's that's amazing. Uh, so, Nick, did you want to end up our new segment with a sad news? I mean, want is a strong word. I have sad news. I didn't, I didn't set out being like, do you know what? Naomi and Nick are too happy. I'm gonna I'm gonna end that for them, but it's really easy to do that with you guys because you guys love mammals, don't you? I love yes, most of them. Yeah. There's some bad news for them, and indeed all vertebrates. There was a study done by the WWF and London Zoo where they assessed the rate of decline in vertebrates. So from now on, it's very important to remember that I'm talking about vertebrates when I talk about any decline because that's what this study was measuring. What they discovered is around the world in the last 50 years. There's been a two-thirds decline in wildlife. 
Is that in number or biodiversity? That is biodiversity by number oh, of species. God. So that's how they've been measuring it. So it may be that the number of animals is the same, that the actual number of individuals is the same, but the diversity within that is changed massively. And this can be caused by farming. So, for example, if you chop down a part of rainforest with, um, you know, loads and loads of species in it and you fill it with cows, you've got lots of animals in there, but there's no variation. They found some really staggering, staggering stuff. Like I said, over two thirds, I think it averaged out about 68% around the world. But there was some amazing drop offs in um, a, a diversity of vertebrates. So the highest was in Latin America and the Caribbean, where the declines were 94%. That's sickening. Yeah. And this is all in the last 50 years. And this isn't like the line has tapered off. This is something that is still going on. And that is something that, yeah, we are part of. So what they suggest is in the future for to stop this, that basically we will have to change our diet quite radically. So we will have to eat foods that have less of an impact on diversity. There are obvious ones, which I feel like everybody knows, which is things like beef, uh, cut beef out your diet or cheese, uh, because cows are really energy inefficient and they use a lot of land compared to how much um, energy they produce. But you often hear about things like uh, palm oil, where the situation is not quite so simple. Like obviously growing palm oil in those regions is very devastating because it grows in areas where there's lots of diversity. But also it's actually one of the better things to grow uh, to get calories into our body compared to other oils that we might use. So there's a lot of complicated situations about what food we should use. But uh, yeah, definitely eating less animal products. And the big one they actually pushed to was food waste. The amount of food we waste is a huge, huge problem. I assume we're all quite guilty of occasionally wasting food. Um, I know that I am. I can be guilty of that. Um, but if we can actually reduce food waste, because that means that less calories are, are wasted and there's less land use, then this will actually have a, a positive impact on wildlife. So there are certain things that individuals can do uh, and behaviours that we can change. But they suggest that, yeah, there'll have to be worldwide changes on expectations of human diet if we're going to sort of reverse these trends. Yeah, I definitely am guilty of that as well. And I think as well, there's a lot of emphasis on having food, all food available all the time. Whereas if we ate stuff that was seasonal or available mm. instead of, you know, getting things shipped or having to have certain things, I think that would also be beneficial. But yeah, it's it's a difficult topic, certainly. Yeah, sad news. Yeah. Yeah, on, on. on that note, <laughs> I think that brings our news to the end. Um, so join us again, listeners, after this short break, where we'll be talking about our theme, fossils. Hey, listeners, now you've listened for this long, we know you're cool. So we can tell you all about our website, which is thenaturalselection.net. Visit there, you can find links to our Facebook, as well as blogs and vlogs and a little bit more about the team. If you do want to ask us any questions, do head on to our Facebook, where you can message us. We like suggestions or anything, really. And whichever podcast provider you use, just like, share, subscribe, do what you can, because it would really help us out grow in number. Um, yeah, and reach more listeners like you guys. Awesome. I'll let you get back on the show now. Bye-bye. Welcome back, listeners. So we are now talking about our theme, and this week we're going to talk all about fossils. And um, so I thought I would get us started and give a brief overview of how to become a fossil. So it's incredibly rare. Getting fossilized is very difficult. There's not many ways that you can get fossilized, and conditions 
need to be right. So the first step is death. Yeah, that makes sense. And the second step, <laughs> the second step is that you want to be buried probably quite quickly. So some good places for this would be in river beds, um, or if you get buried under earth, and um, because you want to stop something coming along and eating you. You also want to stop um, the environment uh, disarticulating you as a skeleton. When actually before that, the things that is really beneficial to have is to have some hard parts. So for us, we've got bones. That's a good thing that'll get fossilized. But if you're something soft, squishy, like a jellyfish, say, it's going to be much harder for you to get fossilized. Um, so once you get buried, it's also good to be in a um, wetter environment. Um, arid conditions aren't very good for getting fossilized. And anoxic conditions are particularly great if you want to preserve soft tissue. So say, for example, a marsh or a bog, say the Archaeopteryx fossils that have been found were preserved in that sort of marshy environment. And those fossils have feathers still visible. And then you need minerals to come along and replace your impression. And this takes a very long time, millions of years. Um, so I think this is something that Nick is going to talk a little bit about more about later. But subfossils are what we consider to be about 50,000 years old. Um, so after a certain amount of time, we think it's officially become a fossil. Uh, but this isn't the only ways to get preserved. You could also, if you're lucky, uh, get stuck in amber. That would also preserve your soft tissues. Or you could fall into a tar pit. Like the La Brea tar pits in L.A. Did I say that right? Is that the way to say it? The bre- okay. Yeah, it's pronounced um, LA, yeah. <laughs> um, like the tar pits. I usually give it or, more of a R, tar pits, but... <laughs> um, or you can get preserved in ice. So there's some uh, fossils or sub-fossils that have been preserved in ice. And that is also a, a good way to help preserve your soft tissues. But yeah, it's it's not easy. Yeah, I, th- I think I think I've heard something around that it was like one percent of all species that existed might have a fossil represented. Oh yeah, wow. Um. Oh, actually, I've I saw a good analogy that I think it's compared to if you took everyone in America, the amount that would get preserved is about a quarter of a human skeleton of all the people that live in America. So like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So like something like yeah, seventeen bones or yeah, must be more than that. But yeah, but um, yeah. Naomi, it's um, it's interesting. I'm really glad that you said uh, subfossils around fifty thousand years because I'm not gonna say that you're wrong because this is one of the beautiful things about fossils is that no one really has a clear definition of what a fossil, when the barrier between a fossil and not a fossil is, um, because the the time frame that I heard for subfossils that I have in my head. And I'm, I work with really young things. I know that you do too, but some people are working with things that are 200, 300 million years old. Um, but I'm, if we, if you work with younger things, maybe your time frame is a little different, but I've heard around 12,000 years is a good marker for subfossil. But again, it's, um, it really depends on what you're calling a fossil, which is pretty cool. What makes sense to me, then maybe this will, you know, I think there's a bit of debate in the how you use them and who uses these terms, but 
uh, fossil is basically something that started to mineralize, like you're saying. It has these sort of like bits of rock and mineral replacing the bone structure. Um, and subfossil is something that's sort of on the way to doing that, but hasn't done it all the way. And maybe a fossil is something that's more, which is still a pretty rough boundary. But yeah, I like those. I like that sort of, it's something that seems so scientific, like what is a fossil, what's not a fossil. Um, but it's mm. still something that seems pretty subjective. Yeah, it's so true. And I suppose it, it would really depend what the thing getting fossilized is made out of, what the conditions are. So it's all so variable. But yeah, oh, and the other thing is if you want to, you need to be found. You need to be, stay in the same place for, you know, millions of years and then someone needs to find you. That's as true. Well. Yeah. yeah, that thing that, um, because you always see those digs, so whenever they show a dig, they're in the desert. Mm-hmm. And I imagine you guys know why they look in the desert. There's no vegetation. Yeah, there's no vegetation. It's easy to see. There's no actual logical reason why there'd be more fossils in the desert. There might be the most amazing fossils under the Amazon, but try finding them. Whereas no, in thanks. the desert. Yeah, in the desert, you might find a bone sticking out where you can start to look. Hmm. So it's not that they're more likely in a desert, it's just that we're more likely to actually see them. Cool. If you do find a bone out in the wild, there's a couple of good ways to know whether it's a bone or a fossil. Um, I think we talked about one of them in a, a few episodes ago, maybe in our museum episode. You can, it's not recommended, but you can give them a little lick, and if your tongue sticks to them, it's bone. And if it doesn't stick, it's more likely rock. There's another way, too, which is even less recommended, which is if you have a ring or some small metal object, you can tap it lightly. And you have to be really careful not to break it. But bone and fossil will make really different sounds. A fossil will make a really nice high-pitched ringing sound, and a bone will make a hollow clunking sound. And so say if it was like a sub-fossil, would it be kind of an in-between noise, or is it kind of fairly, it would be one side or the other of it? A hollow ring. (laughs) I think things can fossilize in many different ways, so they might depend on the fossil. Cool. So you know this fossilization problem can cause... What's it? You know this fossilization process can cause problems for modern scientists? How so, Nick? Well, we often think of, like, the fossil record as being sort of the definitive thing on how we can learn about animals, but it's big problems, like the way that fossils are made, like you said, where you're most likely to be made a fossil. So one example is squids. Squids don't really fossilize all that well because their their sac that they use um, for buoyancy is alkali. The presence of alkali when it dies means it's most it would likely uh, degrade anything that would be able to make it a fossil. So finding a squid fossil is exceptionally rare compared to things like cuttlefish where they have a harder part. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. And I actually saw something I think. I'm not 100% sure how accurate the figure is, but something like 99% of all fossils are marine because that's where it's easiest to become a fossil as well. So. And you know this confused ornithologist? Did it? Yeah, so when they were trying to find the earliest birds, and this is before DNA, they were looking at fossils and they were like, well, the earliest fossils are of penguins. So penguins must be the earliest birds. And what's next is things like albatrosses. So albatrosses must, and penguins must be the basal form of birds. Um, whereas now it's obvious when you think about it that it's not. The most basal birds are ostriches, which actually diverged from the rest of the birds before the dinosaurs died. Penguins are just most likely to be found in the fossil record because they live by the sea. Sometimes it's as easy as that. Yeah. 
There's more than one kind of fossil, so the fossil might not necessarily be just the whole organism. And uh, there's other other types, right, Nick? Yeah, that's right. Um, there's some, something called parafossils or um, parataxa, which are things that are described based on fossils that aren't the body of the animal. So fossils can also form from things like the eggs or the burrows or nests, or even things like uh, gastroliths, which are rocks that sort of tumble around the inside of things like lizards and dinosaurs, help them digest stuff, but have really distinct signatures that you can tell different species between. Of course, some things are only described based on these uh, sort of preserved parts, or they're called trace fossils. And those things, it's really difficult to to connect them to things that are preserved body parts. But there's a whole taxonomy of like a whole tree of things like uh, ovotaxa, which are things based on egg descriptions. So you have a tree of things that lay eggs and you can sort of look at their skeletons in the fossil record. But then you can also have something like a tree of eggs and figure out how these eggs are related. And there's a, there's some really cool papers coming out recently about structure of dinosaur eggs based on some complex crystallography refractive technology that i don't understand but is um helping researchers understand how eggs are made and um, how different dinosaurs are related to each other which is pretty cool wow it's so amazing to me as well that something can turn into rock and yet you can still study how maybe it was in real life like how the structure remained it's just so impressive i saw recently about um footprints that they'd found so this is relating to tetrapods so they'd found tetrapod fossils that had been on land and these are really good evidence of when sort of the four-legged things that would eventually become us arrived on land but in poland footprints from a tetrapod which was actually 18 million years older than the first body they found. And on top of that, by the footprints, they estimate that it was about 2.5 meters long. Did you say 18 or 80? 18 million years. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, so like you were saying, it's not just the animals, that it's sometimes just by the footprints you can actually deduce things. Mm. Oh, there's one more type of trace fossil that I wanted to bring to your guys' attention today. Have you I hope it is what I think it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you know what a coprolith is? Naomi, you're smiling. I feel like I do. Good. I do. That's it's, here. It's fossilized poop. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. There was someone at the Natural History Museum when we were, when we were doing research there who was studying the coproliths of giant ground sloths, which, if you're going to study fossil poop, is probably the coolest fossil poop that you could study. Yeah, probably. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's really cool how we can get information and learn new things from fossils, how they can tell us different pieces of information. But Nick, you have a good example of information that you that you can get from a fossil. Yeah, and not even a very complete one. So I'm going to talk about, in the way that I do, insects. I'm going to talk about the oldest insect fossil ever found. And do you know where it was found? I feel like maybe the desert, just because you said a lot of fossils are found in the desert. I would say that where they were found is probably the opposite of a desert. These fossils of the earliest insects were found in Scotland. Oh. 
And they were able to tell this from, bear in mind, insects are pretty small. They're able to tell this from just their fossil of its head. This is why I found this amazing, is that you often, when you think of fossils, I think our childlike brain, which I think every scientist, and I know you two have it, there's a sense of like, every time we research something, it's the child part of our brain sort of going, no way, cool. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So when someone says fossil, all of us immediately think of giant dinosaurs. No, not Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I will admit that I do think of big things. Yeah, totally. When, when someone says fossils to me, I always think of those big displays in museums that when you walk through the first hall, you get those giant displays of dinosaur fossils. Whereas, yeah, you can get tiny, tiny ones, which can tell you so much. And this was the world's earliest insect. And what they found, this is about 400 million years old, this insect. And the way they're able to tell it uh, that it was an insect is they looked at its mouth parts and they were able to see it had the jaw of an insect, but not just any insect. It has the jaws of a winged insect. Which makes them think that even though they don't have its body, that this insect had wings. Cool. So, yeah, they can tell what its body looked like just from its jaw. But what's even more amazing by that is that the first insects probably didn't have wings. So it would imply that this isn't the oldest insect, it's just the oldest one we've found. It's probably a million years down the line and quite derived as an insect. Chances are Scotland could lose its crown at some point for the world's oldest insect fossil. Cool. I love how much we don't know. Well, I did read somewhere that you guys might like this, that one of the biggest gaps we have is in early vertebrates because the early vertebrates didn't really have hard bits. The the vertebrae wasn't really mineralized very much. So, yeah, the, the, the gaps in the early vertebrate uh, lineage are huge. So we don't really, really know what was going on there at all. I believe that for sure. Cool. There's a lot of work left to be done, a lot of fossils left to find. Yeah. We still have jobs. So I think you wanted to tell us, Nick, a little bit about one of the first pretty cool fossils that we found. Yeah. So throughout history, there's probably a lot of evidence that humans were finding fossils, but not understanding what they were. So you get things like myths of dragons, which, yeah, you can sort of realize what's happened there. One thing that blew my mind was there was the fossil of the Mosasaur, which is found in 1764. And what they discovered was, well, originally when they found these giant uh, reptiles, the original conclusion is that they were from giant humans that had lived in the past that were sort of milling about Great Britain. Uh, But they're not from giant humans, as we now know. But what is significant about the Mosasaur, I mean, I don't want to rag on the Mosasaur. It's a perfectly, perfectly cromulent dinosaur. What is significant about this one, it was by the naturalist uh, Georges Cuvier, a French zoologist. Now, what he was able to deduce from this fossil is that this fossil belonged to a species which no longer existed, which to us seems obvious because we're fully aware that some things go extinct. But until then, they hadn't considered that animals no longer existed that had existed in the past. The concept of extinction was pretty new to them and they had to wrap their head around that the world they were living in is not always how it looked. And I really love that fossil because it really, it probably changed 
the view of planet Earth more than any other fossil. Wow, that's what a great way to put it. Yeah, I, this was un, until you said it, I hadn't really thought about it like that. But yeah, I definitely take it for granted that, you know, things evolve and things go extinct. And, you know, we have a relatively good grasp of how long things have been around. But I suppose at that time, they didn't. Yeah, it, pretty impressive. I have a brief aside about Cuvier. Um, I just wanted to go check his name on Wikipedia and on English Wikipedia, his name is listed as Jean Leopold Nicolas Frédéric Baron Cuvier. No Georges in there, but then he's known as Georges Cuvier. But then in the German Wikipedia, which came up because I'm searching for it in Germany, his name is listed as Georges Leopold Chrétien Frédéric Dagobert Baron de Cuvier, which is a completely different name. <laughs> There's like three different names in that name. <laughs> How can that be? But yeah, I think that was around the time as well that um, Dodos died out, which was sort of the first accepted ones where we realised that, oh, this isn't coming back. Whoops. Mm. Yeah. Um, Nick, you mentioned a minute ago uh, the sort of myths of dragons, and that's something I wanted to talk about in today. Uh, which the most obvious one of those to me, I mean, you can imagine giants and how the myths of giants came about because you see these big bones and they look like just like, oh, there's a big chicken bone, but it's the size of a lion. Um, but the, uh, the, it's, you know, that sort of makes sense to me. But then you look in the Natural History Museum or in a picture of the skull of an elephant or even a mammoth in a place where there aren't living elephants anymore. And you see this enormous hole right in the middle of the skull. And it looks just like an eye hole, like a big old cyclops or something. But the, because the trunk is gone, it's just got this big flat face with a hole in the middle. And then the eyes are on the side and are very small for the head. Um, so the idea that the cyclops um, myth came from mammoth fossils or elephant-like fossils also holds water because um, they were really they were common on the islands around Greece. Uh, and there's a lot of fossils of elephants and mammoths in that area. So um, it's easy to imagine that the Cyclops myth could have come from that. I was reading also about um, the myths about griffins, which originated around the Gobi Desert area. And there are a lot of fossils in the Gobi Desert of dinosaurs like Protoceratops and Psittacosaurus, um, both of which were pretty big dinosaurs, at least the size of a lion, and they had beaks. So it's a pretty cool direct connection to the sort of mythological like griffin lion imagery. Um, but it doesn't stop with people um, from prehistoric times or ancient times, because even recently when we're discovering new animals, sometimes it takes a little while to figure out what bones go where and what is really what part of what. So one of my favorite stories is when, um, when George Mantell, one of the earlier paleontologists in London, in the 1800s, found a bone that looked like a spike in with a bunch of dinosaur bones that hadn't been identified yet. He thought that it might be a horn spike or a spike that goes on the head somewhere, something for maybe display or protection or defense or attack. But after having a closer look at it, some of his peers said, hold on a minute, George, this is a finger. And <laughs> Hold on a minute, George. Don't make Just me say your full name. <laughs> Just a second, George. Um, I think that this might be a finger. Um, and that's where it is now. Um, it's It was sort of like a fake, a pseudo-thumb on the iguanodon. 
Uh, and there's a painting in the Natural History Museum of an iguanodon standing in a big forest. Um, and it's looking at the, at the painter with its thumb up, like it's doing thumbs up. Um, and it's quite cute, but it's a, a nod to that sort of confusion when we're figuring out what dinosaurs were. Do you want to know something really useless that I know about iguanodons, yeah. but was really useful you, for them? What's this whole podcast for? Yeah. Yeah. They could move their jaw to the side one way. So explain what you mean. So one of the big advantages of us that we sort of neglect is that we can chew our food. Uh, and the way we masticate is we sort of rotate our jaw so it goes round and round and round. And this grinds up our food by going side to side as well as up and down. But you've probably seen animals that can't do this. And when they eat, they sort of just go up and down. Like, nah, 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 and that's how they would chew. Whereas the iguanodon could grind its food by moving its jaw one way. So it couldn't go both ways, but it would grow one way and be able to grind its food and get more nutrients from the same leaves. That's probably why it's so successful. Cool. Cool. That and the thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. That and its um, positive attitude. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, one of the, the groups of the Iguanodon was actually renamed after Mantel. There's a Mantelosaurus. It's one of the one of the genuses, the iguanodon. Even though he was wrong. Yeah. Well, so we hope. can't blame him. <laughs> so it's hope for us. All the stuff we get wrong, we might still get dinosaurs named after us. Although my surname is etymologically linked to iguanodons. Dentosaurus. Well, they're iguana tooth. GDPR. <laughs> um, it means iguana tooth, and my name means tooth. Ah, ah. Hmm. So you guys talked about some really cool and important fossils. Um, we also talked about in other episodes some kind of really important fossils that have been found in that illustrate different evolutionary steps and different things like that. Um, so I decided this week, instead of talking about great steps, I wanted to talk about things that are a bit more controversial. Um, so the first one I wanted to talk about was, have you guys heard of the Bone Wars? No. Um, so it was between these two, basically fossil hunters. Uh, so Marsh and Cope. So Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Brinker Cope. They were two American... I'm sorry, what was Marsh's first name? Othniel? Othniel? Um, <laughs> no, that wasn't on your pronunciation. That was very much on his parents. They called him Osniel. Uh, so O T. Maybe this is a name, and I've just never heard of it. O T H N I E L. Am I saying that right? Osniel. Yeah, I I don't know either, but that's a bold name. Yeah, yeah. So um, originally they started off. They were fossil hunters, and they originally started off with as friends. Um, so they were both young American scientists and they were pa pioneers in paleontology. But their friendship grew into a bitter rivalry and they kept trying to one-up each other. Um, so they would steal discoveries from each other. They would, I think at one point, one of them bribed the people mining fossils. I think Marsh bribed the people mining fossils for Cope to send them to him instead. And so they, they had a very bitter rivalry, but actually they discovered a lot of fossils. So I think we have them to thank for the Triceratops, Brontosaurus and Ceratosaurus um, that came from their competition. 
But yeah, eventually they they kind of brought about their own ruin because they spend all their money trying to rush all these discoveries and find new things. And I think in the end, Cope died first. And he um, did it, he left his brain to science so that it could be weighed and measured. And he basically threw down the gauntlet so that Marsh, if Marsh wanted to, they could weigh, they, he could get his brain weighed and see which one was smarter. But uh, Marsh d- d- decided not to go for it. So he, he was buried. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that, that, that's them. They, they provided us with lots of very important fossils. They pioneered a lot of paleontology as we know it. But yeah, they hated each other. Mm. So, yeah, and actually another mini controversy kind of in itself is Brontosaurus. I don't know if this is something that you guys heard, but for a while, Brontosaurus weren't accepted as a group. They were like, oh, Brontosaurus aren't real. But actually, it's been since uh, realized that they are a legitimate group within themselves. So originally, they thought that it was misidentified, that the um, types specimen for Brontosaurus was misidentified as it. And it was a different dinosaur, an Apatosaurus, I think. But they have confirmed that Brontosaurus is its own group. And, oh. Yeah, and then my I mean, final... I was genuinely interested in that. But uh, it's really <laughs> hard to be like, um, good for them. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> some, some people were, were sad because Brontosauruses were their favourite. And then they were told they weren't a real group, but they are. So, and so my final piece of controversy that I want to talk about is, have you guys heard of the Piltdown Man? Yes. Yeah, so this is a pretty cool fossil of hoax, uh, as, it, as it turned out to be. So basically, in 1912, this amateur archaeologist, Charles Dawson, claimed that he discovered the missing link between ape and man. Um, so he found this kind of human-like skull in Pleistocene gravel beds, in Sussex, in England. If I was going to look for the uh, missing link between ape and man, I'd probably also look in the south of England. (laughs) And within this uh, find, they found the top of a a kind of human-looking skull and then a mandible piece and a canine. They were found over several years, and this collection included the mandible, a set of teeth, parts of a human-like skull, and a canine tooth. Uh, They also found some tools a carved slab of bone, and fragments of fossils from Pleistocene-Pliocene-era mammals. They also had the same coloration as the rest of the gravel pit. And so for a while they were taken together, this was sort of this fossil locked in between apes and man. So they took it as a missing link. And it wasn't until the 50s, uh, as technology improved, that they were able to confirm that it was in fact a hoax. So... There was chemicals put on it in order to make it look the correct color. And it turned out that the skull was a ancient human skull and that the mandible and canine were from an orangutan. So the, they think that it was probably the Charles Dawson who who forged it, the hoax. Because um, I think it was around the same time that uh, things were being found in other countries and... Um, think kind of British pride made them want to find things in Britain so they pushed them to forge this hoax 
Yeah, it's not like us to do anything damaging through national pride, is it? <laughs> um, but yeah, it actually kind of... <laughs> I'm just going to give that that. So yeah, she's it... got 800 years of resentment on that joke. <laughs> <laughs> so this was actually relatively damaging because for about 30 years, everything found after that was sort of tried to place in the context of this missing link. And it kind of made other more legitimate finds seem implausible because uh, people that did believe in this, so some people were still skeptical at the time, but people that did believe in that this was a real fossil, it, it skewed their view on how early man would have been. That's, um, what, what a Wally. Oh, what an it, absolute Wally. Do you guys want to know what he named it? Was this it? will make you his, 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 your esteem for him go down even more. Uh, is it something with, to do with England? No, he named it after himself. Oh, oh no. How oh, gosh. Ah, I know, right? He named it mm. E. Anthropus Dossoni. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, E. Anthropus E. How do I pronounce that? E.O. Is that you? Mm. Yeah. Oh, E.O. Wait. Like the true, doesn't that mean true? I think that's EU. EU, okay. I think EO oh. means early. Oh, okay. So is that oh, E? It means Don, like Don, Eohippus. Yes. Yeah. Don Horse. Yeah, you Don idiot, Hippus. Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to think of the like that early, like EO Termima, or that early mammal, that's something, or like, yeah, or Don it's like dawn mother that one means so this is like dawn person okay well so they, they they think it was him it may may have been someone else they were never able to confirm but um i think papers published have conclusively decided that it was just one person that was in on the hoax not more than one but yeah so that was my instead of talking about fun cool fossils like you guys did i wanted to talk about fake fossils how the English ruined science. Apparently one of the other suspects in the identity of the forger of the Piltdown Man is Arthur Conan Doyle. I, yeah, yeah, I saw. Uh, he Apparently he was like in the amateur archaeological. I didn't know, I didn't, re- I didn't see that he was a suspect, but yeah, he was like one of the amateur archaeologists. Yeah, very much believed in fairies. Hmm. Huh. And um, and the spirits and all of that, and would like write letters about how stupid anyone was who didn't believe in fairies or ghosts. They were just idiots. This quote: Some people have suggested that there may also have been a second fraudster seeking to use outrageous fraud in the hope of anonymously exposing the original frauds. Quote by Professor Adrian Lister of the UK's Natural History Museum. Oh, fun. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, that's fun. Oh, yeah, because there's there's actual mammals there. So, like, ah, cool. Cool. On that controversial fossil, I think that is the end of our theme. Join us next week where we'll be talking about beetles. Mm. No, not the band. And the insect. <laughs> yeah, the band was yesterday. <laughs> So thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, so that is goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> and goodbye from me. Goodbye.
I was I'm but I'm sad that we didn't go off on beetle puns because oh, I was yes. gonna wrap it up by saying, Okay guys, let it be. Hey. <laughs>